I heard a song recently, and it went like this. Hey, oh, won't you play another somebody done somebody wrong song? Who's that? B.J. Thomas. You heard of B.J. Thomas? Well, he's talking in that song about a love relationship and how he was wronged. And I thought that's a great segue to this message because what I want to talk about this morning is how to deal with mistreatment or injustice. Have you ever been mistreated by somebody? Have you ever been mistreated by a friend, a colleague, maybe a family member, maybe a sibling? We all have experienced mistreatment or injustice in our life. How does God want us to respond? Well, James chapter 5 gives us the answer to that, so I invite you to turn to James chapter 5. For those of you who are visiting, we're going through the uh, epistle of James verse by verse, and we enter into our last chapter of the book of James, and this is part one on how to handle mistreatment or injustice. Now remember, James was the half-brother of Jesus Christ, and by the way, tradition says that James died a martyr's death. He was pushed off the temple precinct, and he plunged to his death. But James, before he died, writes this epistle to a group of beleaguered Christians who are suffering for their faith. It was one of the earliest epistles in the New Testament. And James is writing to comfort these believers. Now remember, in the last half of the book, James is addressing the rich. In chapter 4, we looked at that last time, James is addressing wealthy merchants. These are businessmen, entrepreneurs who are trying to make a profit, and James basically chides them. Ostensibly, they were believers, but he chides them because they were not including God in their plans. Now, in chapter 5, James is going to switch gears, and he's going to address the wealthy, but he's not going to address wealthy merchants, but rather wealthy landowners. We think land ownership was relegated to the medieval period where you had fiefs and their fiefdoms, but it really goes back into the first century where there were these wealthy landowners, and what they were doing was taking advantage of these poor Jewish Christians. They were mowing their fields, and they weren't paying them their wage. Many of them lived at a subsistence level. They were poor. And so they were taking advantage of these poor Jewish Christians and getting rich off their backs. And so James is going to pronounce a scathing diatribe against these particular wealthy, rich individuals that were getting rich. And in the process, he's going to give us principles on wealth. And so here's the question, how do we respond to mistreatment or injustice in our life? We've all experienced it before. Some people have suffered greatly at the hands of other people. How does God want us to respond? Well, James in this section is going to give us several principles of how to respond to injustice and mistreatment. And what he's going to do on the side is give us some principles on how to deal with wealth. Let me give you the first principle, and this is the only one we'll look at for this morning. We'll pick up the next several principles next week. The first principle when dealing with mistreatment or injustice is we must expect God's vindication. We must expect God's vindication. The Bible makes it very clear that those who mistreat us, those who commit injustice against us, God will deal with them accordingly. You say, but wait a minute, what if it's a Christian? There are Christians who mistreat other Christians. Well, listen, 
they're obviously forgiven. They're obviously not going to go to hell. God will deal with them at the judgment seat of Christ if they don't get it right with you. They're going to lose reward. But the wicked rich, those who mistreat us, who are wicked, who don't come to faith in Christ, the Bible promises that there is vindication. And that's what James is going to say here in the first several verses. In fact, James sounds like one of the Old Testament prophets because he pronounces a scathing denunciation upon the wicked rich who were oppressing the poor. Let's pick it up in verse 1. James says this to these beleaguered Jewish Christians. He says, come now, you rich people. In other words, you need to listen up, you rich people who do not know God. He's not condemning them because they are wealthy. He's condemning them because they are wicked, they are evil, they've rejected Christ, and they are abusing the poor, God's people. And notice the judgment he pronounces upon them in verse 1. He says to them, weep, and the word there in the Greek literally means to cry, and then he uses a stronger word in the Greek. It is the word howl. He says, I want you to start crying, and I want you to start howling, over the miseries that are coming upon you. In other words, you may enjoy your wealth now. You may be benefiting off of these poor people, but I want you to know, and James is being prophetic here, he is saying there is coming a time in the future when you are going to weep and you are going to howl because of the miseries that are coming upon you. In other words, they're going to experience the wrath of God if they don't repent and get right with Jesus Christ. In fact, it's sort of a reversal. They're enjoying their wealth now, but they're going to experience misery later. On the other hand, especially in the first century, there are Christians that suffered. They were experiencing misery, but now they're in the presence of God. They're in Abraham's bosom, as Luke 16 says. They're enjoying all the benefits of heaven. And by the way, someone doesn't go to hell because they're rich, and someone doesn't go to heaven because they're poor. People go to heaven or hell because they reject Jesus Christ. But he is pronouncing sort of a prophetic statement on the judgment of God. He says, you better weep and you better howl because the judgment is coming upon you. And here he is stating that God will vindicate his people ultimately. He's giving a word of assurance to these poor Jewish Christians that even though these wicked rich are oppressing you and they're getting rich off of your labor, I want you to know that misery is coming upon them. And James gives us here the first principle we learn about wealth, and that is this. Wealth cannot deliver us on the day of judgment. Because he tells these wicked rich, you're going to experience the judgment of God. You're going to be weeping and you're going to be wailing over the mis miseries that are coming upon you. And this shows us that wealth will not deliver us on the day of judgment. God cannot be bribed. There are a lot of wealthy people in our generation that are able to pervert justice. They're able to bribe a judge. They're able to wiggle their way out of certain things because of their money. But on that day, when they stand before God, God will not accept a bribe. Laura and I on Amazon Prime have been watching this uh, series. It's called The Sun. It's a good series, but you have to forward through some of the junk. It's about a wealthy oil tycoon who basically is trying to get rich off of the oil on his land in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And he finds out that his neighbor, who is Hispanic, from Mexico, has a lot of oil on his land. And so what does this rich Texan do? He ends up bribing a judge in order to possess the land of this 
wealthy Mexican in order to steal from his land, and he ends up doing that. Well, listen, on the day of judgment, you're not going to be able to bribe God because the Bible makes it very clear that God is a God of justice. He's a God of fairness. God sees truth from error, and he's able to expose lies. In fact, in the Proverbs, it says this in verse 4 of chapter 11, wealth is not profitable on a day of wrath, but righteousness rescues from death. Wealth will not deliver you. And James goes on in verse 2 to talk about how God will vindicate his people. He says in verse 2, your wealth, speaking to the wicked rich here, is ruined. Now, what is he talking about here? He's talking about food. Food was a form of wealth in that day, just as it is today. We often take it for granted because all of us eat in abundance. If we're hungry or we got a hankering for something, we get it. In that day, many people were poor. They lived at a meager subsistence. And so he says to these wealthy people, your wealth is ruined. In other words, they had so much food, it was rotting. In fact, we would say today that many of our pets eat better than a lot of people around the world. And listen, we shouldn't feel guilty for having an abundance of food. God has blessed our country. And listen, I wonder, in fact, I don't wonder, there is coming a time in America where there will be a shortage of food. If you read the book of Revelation, when you get in the horsemen of the apocalypse, one of the horses represents famine. There is coming a day where there will be famine. None of us have never known that before. These people were poor, whom these rich people were oppressing, and he says to the rich, your wealth is ruined, your food is rotting, you have so much of it. And then he says, and your clothes are moth-eaten. Now again, wealth was defined in that day just like it is today by how much clothes you have. Most people in that time pretty much had the clothes on their back. They didn't walk into a closet and have a variety of outfits unless they were wealthy. And so he says, your clothes are moth-eaten. Why? Because they had so many of them the moths were able to destroy them. In fact, I remember growing up, the one thing when I'd go to my grandfather's house was when I'd open his closet, I would smell mothballs. You ever smell mothballs before? In fact, some people smell like mothballs. I won't call you out on it. None of you have here so far. But listen, wealth was defined by the abundance of food and also the clothes that they had. In fact, in Deuteronomy 24, God made it very clear that if someone was wealthy, lent to a poor man, he would take his clothes as collateral, his garment. And he would say at the end of the day, give them back their garment because they rely on that to keep warm. God was very clear. You see, wealth was defined by how much clothes you have. And then, of course, he lists one more form of wealth in that day. He says this, verse 3, your silver and gold are corroded. In other words, precious metals. Wealth was defined by how much silver, how much gold. Today, it would be money, it would be stocks, it would be bonds, whatever else we have. It would be our houses, it would be our cars. All the gadgets that we have, we're very wealthy. He says your silver and gold are corroded. Why was it corroding? Because they stockpiled their wealth. And notice what he says here. He's pronouncing a judgment on them, and he's reminding these poor Jewish Christians that God is going to vindicate them because he says this, and their corrosion, that is their silver and gold, will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Wow. James is like a prophet here, pronouncing judgment. He's saying on the day of judgment, your precious metals are going to stand up 
using personification is going to stand up on the day of judgment and your silver and your gold are going to testify against you that you stockpiled your wealth and you had so much of it, it corroded. And so James gives us here three forms of wealth, clothes, food, and precious metals. It's the same thing today. All wealth can be subsumed under these categories. And listen, there's nothing wrong with having wealth in and of itself, but James gives us here a second principle about wealth. The first principle was wealth will not deliver us on the day of judgment, and principle number two is wealth is temporary. Because notice what he says about wealth. It is ruined, it is moth-eaten, and it is corroded. This tells us that wealth is temporary. That's why we're not to live for our wealth. We are to enjoy it, but we're not to live for it. Notice what Paul said to Timothy, to the wealthy in chapter 6. He says this, Command those who are rich, that is you and I, in this present world, not to be arrogant or pompous, nor to put their hope in wealth, here it is, which is so uncertain, it's temporary. But to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. In other words, God is not against us having wealth. God is not against you taking a vacation. God's not against you having a nice house. He's not against you having a nice car. But listen, God wants us to enjoy it with this principle in mind, as long as the kingdom is first. God says if you're rich... He says you're not to stockpile your wealth to the point where you're not putting God as a priority. You say, well, Mike, how do I know if I'm materialistic? How do I know if I'm living for my wealth, which is temporary, rather than God? There's several ways, but two in particular. Number one, are you giving your first fruits to God? If you're not giving your first fruits to God, you're materialistic. Unless you're a new Christian and you don't know, you've never been taught. But the Bible says you're to give your first fruits. Now, this isn't to keep this church afloat. God doesn't need your money. He doesn't need my money. This isn't for institutional survival. God wants your heart, and your money represents your heart and security. So when you give God your first fruits and you give generously to the kingdom, God has your heart. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there is your what? Your heart also. So are you giving your first fruits? And then secondly, is the kingdom a priority in your life? Are you serving the Lord? Are you passionate about serving the Lord, however he's gifted you and getting the gospel out? If those two things are not true in your life, your checkbook and your scheduler, then I can tell that you probably are a materialistic person. You say, but I don't have a lot of, I don't have a lot of money. But you're living for the things of this age rather than the things of God. And so he says, instruct the wealthy to invest because wealth is uncertain. It is temporary. In fact, there was a preacher, he's now deceased. 20 years ago, E.V. Hill preached at a church in California that was in a lower income area. E.V. Hill was known to be a dynamic preacher and he was well known around the U.S. and he was asked to speak at a very wealthy southern church in the south. And he got up and he gave his pleasantries and he said to this wealthy congregation that was in suburbia, he said to them, he said, you know what the difference between you guys and mine, my church where I'm at? He says, you know what the difference is? He says, we have a lot of graffiti on our walls. He says, when I came here, I didn't notice any graffiti. He said, you know what I'd like to do? He said, I'd like to take a paint uh, bucket and I would like to take the paint, and I would like to paint all over your expensive homes and your expensive cars temporary. 
And he's right, it's temporary. Should we feel guilty for having these things? Not at all. My point is not to guilt you. It's simply to say that wealth will not deliver on the day of judgment. And secondly, wealth is temporary. It's not going to last. In fact, you remember Sam Bankman. He was the guy that recently got in trouble with uh, all that cryptocurrency. Did you know that he lost $32 billion? It went away like that, and he's under investigation with the Department of Justice. You see, wealth does not last. Well, James goes on in verse 3 as he continues to remind these poor Jewish Christians that God will vindicate them one day. He says to the wicked rich, you stored up treasure in the last days. You're storing up all your wealth, you're stockpiling it, and we're in the last days. The last days represents that time period between Christ's first coming and second coming. And so we are in the last days. And he says to them, you have stored up your treasures. You're hoarding your wealth. How were they doing that? He says in verse 4, look, the pay that you withheld from the workers who reaped your fields cries out. Their pay is personified here as crying out to God because these wicked rich were withholding paying these poor Jewish Christians who were basically laboring on their fields. Their pay was crying out, as it were, and he says, and the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. In other words, he's promising these poor Jewish Christians that God hears their cries. God hears their suffering, and he is going to vindicate them. And by the way, God made it very clear that we're not to mistreat the poor. This is exactly what the rich were doing. God said in the Old Testament, you are not to withhold wages from a poor laborer. And by the way, if you're an employer, even if you have a wealthy company and you have a wealthy business, you are to treat your employees with respect. You're to pay them a fair wage. You're not to mistreat those under you who do work for you. Notice what God said in Deuteronomy chapter 24. He said, do not take advantage of a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether that worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in one of your towns. Pay them their wages each day before sunset because they are poor and are counting on it. Otherwise, they may cry out to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. See, God hears the cries of those who have been mistreated, those who have been oppressed, those who've experienced injustice. He's saying to these wealthy people in Israel, I don't care if it's a Jewish person or a foreigner, you make sure that you pay them a fair wage and that you pay them on time because they are relying on that. And that's what these wicked rich were doing in James's time. They were not paying these poor believers. They were hoarding their wealth. They were mistreating them at the expense of the poor. You know, today we have laws we have labor laws. We have unions that prevent this from happening. But you know what? There are people overseas that take advantage of poor people. You know how many kids there are that work in factories? I've read about this where many of these young kids, I'm talking 8, 9, 10 years old, they will labor in these factories for 15, 16 hours a day, and they make a pittance. Listen, somebody's getting rich off their back. And God is saying, if they don't repent and come to Christ, woe to them. 
Think about the drug cartels that are taking advantage of people. They're dealing drugs and they're using people basically as mules to deliver their drugs. Listen, they're getting rich off of these people. They're infecting them with their drugs. They're putting them in the sex slave trade. They're going to be judged by Jesus Christ if they don't repent and come to know him. And so James here is encouraging these believers that are being mistreated, experiencing misjustice. He's saying to them, look, God will vindicate you. He does hear your cries. And James gives us, by the way, a third principle here about wealth. The first principle was wealth will not deliver you on the day of judgment. The second principle is wealth is temporary. The third principle is this, wealth is not to be hoarded, but used to help other people. Because that's exactly what he said to them in verse 3. You have stored up treasure in these last days. They were hoarding their wealth, and they were not paying their employees, and they were misusing them. And so wealth is not to be hoarded, but used to help others. Now, the Bible is very clear that we're not to hoard our wealth. In Luke chapter 12, it says this. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. And here in this parable, we see where this man hoarded. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. In other words, He was blessed. His business prospered. He made a lot of money. He had investments, and they prospered. Nothing wrong with that inherently. But here was the problem. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, ah, I got an idea. This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns, and I will build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus of grain." Today we'd say, I'd open up this account, and I would invest in this, and I would invest in that. And I'll say in verse 19 to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for you for many years. Take life easy, eat and drink, and be merry. In other words, this guy wanted to basically indulge himself. He wanted to retire early. Now, is there anything wrong with his wealth? Is there anything wrong with retirement? No. Is there anything with Wanting to enjoy life? No, but here was the problem in verse 20. But God said to him, you dummy, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. You're going to die. You're not going to enjoy your wealth. How many people in our country are living for retirement and they never enjoy it because they die suddenly? Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And then Jesus gives the punchline here in verse 21. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things. There's the hoarding for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Notice Jesus doesn't condemn having the wealth. What he says is you may be rich in material things. He says, but you are poor when it comes to spiritual things. You're poor towards God. And Jesus here is speaking to people that have all this wealth. They want to retire early, enjoy their wealth, but they don't care anything about God's kingdom. They don't care about basically putting Jesus Christ first or accepting him. Now, some of you ask the question, well, is this verse condemning savings? Does the Bible say I can't save or invest? No, the Bible says we are to save. During the years of plenty, Joseph stored all the grain in Egypt to prepare for the years of famine. Here's what the Proverbs says. You probably heard it before. 21.20 says this, 
the wise store up choice food and olive oil, but fools gulp theirs down. In other words, that verse is saying that if you're a wise person, you're going to save. There's nothing wrong with saving. Jesus talked about investing in Matthew chapter 25. But what Jesus is against is when we hoard our wealth as Christians, we stockpile it so that we can indulge in it, and we're not concerned about helping other people, serving the poor, or giving the Lord our first fruits. In fact, Jesus said in Luke 6.38, in terms of sharing our wealth, he says, give and it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. In 1 Timothy 6, speaking to the rich again, here's what Paul said to Timothy. Command them to do good. If you're rich, God says do good. To be rich in good deeds, and here it is, and to be generous and willing to share. Why? In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. And so the third principle when it comes to wealth is we're not to hoard our wealth. We're not to stockpile it at the expense of other people. Misusing other people to get rich, that's what they were doing. They were working. All these people weren't paying them, and they were benefiting from it. Rather, the Bible says, rather than hoard our wealth, God says to use it to bless other people. (laughs) Now, The Bible, again, does not condemn having money. It doesn't say that you can't enjoy your wealth because we know Abraham was wealthy. We know Job was wealthy. We know King David was wealthy. There's nothing wrong with that. Well, continuing in James chapter 5 and verse 5, he again reminds these poor Jewish Christians that God will vindicate them. He says this to them, you have lived luxuriously on the land and have indulged yourself. Listen, there's a lot of people in, around the world and in America, we are the richest, most prosperous nation to ever be on this planet. God has blessed this country with abundance, but you know what a lot of people are doing? They are living luxuriously. They are self-indulgent. He says, you have fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter. Now, there's a play on words here because the wealthy would typically bring out the fatted calf. You remember the story of the prodigal son. He said, bring out the fatted calf we want to celebrate because my son who was lost is now found. Well, James is reversing this and he's saying to these wicked rich, you are the ones that are getting fat off your wealth and you are the ones that are going to be going to the slaughterhouse, not the fatted calf. Verse 6, you have condemned, you have murdered the righteous man. Now, this could be literal or it could be figurative in the sense that they were murdering them in a legal fashion. They would bribe. They would do things to block the courts. And notice what it says of the poor Jewish Christian. He does not resist you. In other words, he has no legal recourse. He doesn't have the money or he turns the other cheek. And so here's another principle, and this is number four in our list. When it comes to wealth... Wealth is not to be indulged in at the expense of others. Too many people indulge their wealth. Now, is it wrong to have a nice car, a nice house? Is it wrong to have gadgets? Is it wrong to have things? No. My goal is not to make you walk out of here feeling guilty that you have nice things. But 
If you are living in a way that is self-indulgent, and again, the kingdom is not the priority. We're not getting the gospel out. We are not investing in the kingdom. We're not giving sacrificially. That's the problem that God has with the American church. Listen, a lot of churches today are unfunded. You know why? They say 90% of Christians today do not tithe. That tells me we have a problem with materialism in the American church. We're not giving the Lord our first fruits. Talk about indulging. I was reading this week about Kim Jong-il, or Un. Il was the father. Kim Jong-un, he is the dictator in North Korea. And you talk about a person that is self-indulgent and benefiting at the expense of his people because we know North Korea, they got labor camps where people are emaciated, people are brutalized. If you're a Christian, forget it. You're going to be slaughtered. I was reading about this guy's wealth. He is a perfect description of what James is talking about. He is worth four to six billion dollars. The article went on to say this, the 40-year-old spends, listen to this, 30 million a year importing high-quality spirits into his country. That is alcohol. 30 million dollars. He regularly consumes snake wine, which is rumored to increase masculine potency and improve chances of pregnancy. Kim enjoys gourmet food, splurging on Parma ham and Swiss emmental cheese. His former sushi chef said Kim and his father would often dine together on Kobe steaks, the most expensive and sought-after beef of the world, as well as crystal champagne. He also ships many types of food from various countries whenever he feels like it. When the leader wants pork, it is shipped from Denmark, and when he feels like eating caviar, it must come from Iran. If Kim doesn't feel like being too fancy, he imports some mangoes from Thailand. The North Korean autocrat also has a love for junk food. It's obvious. In fact, an Italian chef was hired in 1997 to make pizza exclusively for the Kim family. He also indulges in expensive Brazilian coffee on which he allegedly spent $967,000 in just one year and East St. Laurent black cigarettes that come wrapped in gold foil. The article ends by saying he owns 100 cars and spent $200,000 to build his own personal theater in his house. The cinema holds up to 1,000 people and is complete with its very own concession stands. He built a ski resort and owns a $7 million yacht. He's hoarding his wealth at the expense of his people. And if he doesn't come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, you know what James is going to say to Kim Jong-un? He's going to say, weep and wail for the misery that is coming upon you. Not because he's wealthy, but because he's rejected Christ and he's using or acquiring his wealth at the expense of other people. Again, I remind us, wealth doesn't send us to hell. Being poor doesn't automatically send us to heaven. Rejecting Jesus Christ is what sends you to hell. But once you accept Christ, God wants you to use your wealth appropriately. And so what's the first principle that James has given us this morning as we close? If we are mistreated or we're experiencing injustice, these poor Jewish Christians, they were being mistreated by the wicked rich. They were experiencing injustice. They couldn't go to the courts. The first principle that James gives is this, expect God to vindicate you. The Bible makes it very clear that God will vindicate his own. 
The strongest passage that deals with this is 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Many of them were being persecuted for their faith. As we close, listen to what Paul says. Very strong passage. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, he says, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. And then he says this, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. Notice God's going to give relief. He's going to vindicate. When is this going to happen, Pastor Mike? So-and-so molested me. They've never come to Christ. They've never even asked for forgiveness. What about all these people that are being taken in the sex slave trade? They're abused and they're making wealth for all these evil people. When is it going to happen? This will happen, he says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. He's talking here in context about people that are persecuting Christians. Now, obviously, we don't want this for people. We don't glee over the wrath of God. The wrath of God should make us shudder. The idea of hell should make us shudder. And I'll tell you, I struggle sometimes because in my heart, I have no problem with Hitler being in hell because of what that man did. But I also know the redeemed part of me does not want hell for anybody. And Hitler mistreated so many Jews. He abused them. And he's paying for it now. And so James says, expect God's vindication. And what do we learn about wealth as a side note in this passage? We learn several things about wealth. Wealth cannot deliver us on the day of judgment. Wealth is temporary. Wealth is not to be hoarded but to use to help others. And wealth is not to be indulged in at the expense of other people. Now come back next time and we're going to look at the remainder three or four principles of how to respond to mistreatment or injustice. And if you're sitting here this morning, do you know for certain if you died, you'd go to heaven? You say, well, Mike, how do I get to heaven? Here's how you get to heaven. Watch. Very simple. Be perfect. Keep God's law perfectly and you will make it to heaven. Guess what? That's the problem. Now, here's what God will do for you. It's a great opportunity. God will make you perfect so that you're suitable for heaven. Because, listen, God cannot allow imperfect, sinful people to dwell with him in heaven. He only allows forgiven sinners to dwell with him. So if you want to be perfect, here's what God offers you. All you've got to do is admit your sin and believe in Jesus Christ, trust in his death and resurrection, and here's what God will do. He will take your sin, put it on Christ, and he will take the perfect righteousness of Christ and put it on you, so now you're perfect, and God can take you into heaven. Why? Because you are perfect in his eyes, because you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, you've got to start by acknowledging that you're not perfect, and you cannot save yourself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word to us. Lord, it's a strong word. It's a reminder to all of us because, Lord, every one of us in this room, we are among the wealthy. We are among the prosperous. And, Father, thank you that we can enjoy our wealth. We don't have to feel guilty as long, Father, as we are investing in your kingdom. 
And I pray that, Father, we would continue to be a giving church. We would continue to advance your kingdom. And, Lord, I pray for all those in the world that are being mistreated by the wicked rich. They're being abused, the drug cartels, the sex slave trade, children overseas that are being abused, people in our country. Father, there's so much fraud and defrauding going on, people devouring widows' homes in order to benefit. God, I pray that you would save those individuals, that you would draw them to you. But, Father, we know it's a warning that you will vindicate one day those who mistreat your people. We thank you, God, that justice is coming one day for all. We bless you and praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said...